after a bit of a hiatus, we're back on the podcast, uh, a podcast tip, and I have two very talented young men joining me today, uh, Kenneth Berry and Pete Camarillo, both very proud CSUN alums, although Pete's wearing the UCLA sweater today, so it's, it's all good. I went to UCLA, I get it. Uh, let me just UCLA. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh-oh. Are you an SC guy, Kenneth? Are you an SC guy? I um, don't. You already know what it is. is. Oh, so I love Where's, it. I love it. This, you got is even better, this is even better, better than, than I thought. I just want to start off by telling you guys I'm a huge Touchdowns and Tangents fan, but I must confess to you something. I actually like the tangents better than the touchdowns sometimes. So I'll generally listen to you guys during football season because before basketball and baseball have started and my, my life has, has gone awry. Most and, people um, do. You know, and Pete, so I picture it like, Pete, you're obviously a very talented guy. You're a funny guy, but you're a great straight man. And it all made sense when I found out that Kenny's actually from Oakland. Because, Kenny, you're the crazy thing. <laughs> And I'm like, wait a minute, this guy's a professional college graduate. Where is this coming from? And then I found out you have some Oakland blood. I'm like, okay, now it completely makes sense. But if you do not, if you do, if you never listen to touchdowns and tangents, you need to listen to it because these two young guys rock it. And uh, I, I just see, uh, I mean, that's why I'm having you guys on. So I can say I had you on before that thing bake, breaks big. But uh, so. Give me a little bit. We'll start with Kenny. Kenny, break it down. Give me a little bit of background on yourself. I've kind of spoiled it again, but introduce yourself, and then we'll have Pete introduce himself. Cool, sure. Um, so, yeah, I am from Oakland, East Oakland to be exact. Uh, my mom actually grew up in West Oakland, Lower Bottoms. Uh, the Black Panthers used to walk her to school. Uh, family that dates back to, like, Louisiana and Alabama. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic for me. And then on my dad's side, uh, he's from the south side of Chicago, so put together East Oakland, the south side of Chicago, West Oakland, and you get me. So, you know, there's that. Um, but started out uh, at a junior college, El Camino College. Um, started out just covering, like, city council meetings. Um, I always was a really good writer. I kind of wanted to just, you know, challenge myself and see, okay, this journalism thing, it looks like something I feel like I can do. Like, I did newsletters in middle school, and I wish I would have kept a bunch of them. But, I, I like, newsletters, I would do, like, sports takes, like, little sports segments in the in the student yearbook when I was in yearbook in middle school. And then in high school, I never got the chance to do any of that. I started just playing football and, like, rugby and doing stuff like that. And then when I got to college and I had all that that experience – and I was like, well, you know, it would be great to actually learn the skill set of being an actual journalist. So that's what I kind of started. And I was always good at writing. So started there. I looked at colleges. I didn't want to stay local. I pretty much was just like, yeah, I don't want to go to Long Beach State. They didn't really have much of a program. And I wanted to go somewhere where no one knew me and proved myself there. So Northridge kind of just seemed perfect from the get-go. And... Got to Northridge. Um, even just the fact how me and Pete met is insanely crazy. Because I literally, like the whole semester, my first semester as a transfer, I was like, okay, I'm going to eventually like work up the nerve to go to the school paper and say I want to work there. Um, I ended up, my thing was, all throughout college, I just learned how to get all like the free 
anything that was free, I learned how to get food, <laughs> utensils, uh, whatever. And I would turn that into either networking opportunities or just like, yo, I needed food tonight. I'm good for the next three days until this check comes or whatever. Yeah. And uh, the Sundial had a, they had a, like the amount of money cards. They were giving those away. And I ended up winning like a little trivia contest. I got a message from the social media person and went up there and I was like, wow. Now I actually have an excuse to be in here. It's like, this is my way in. And then I remember talking to a friend of ours, uh, Andrew, who's editor-in-chief at the time, and he, we all just started just randomly talking about sports, like what I like to do, my background. Uh, in my junior college, the first sports I covered were women's badminton and men's golf. And, like, <laughs> the golf coach – was that was coaching at like three different JUCOs, and at the time I was like, I feel like that's a conflict of interest. But the fact that I literally only talked to her like three times the whole semester, and my advisor, who I'm to this day my mentor, she's like, you're the only person to get like three sentences out of her, and I somehow managed to stretch three sentences the whole semester and never actually repeat. So the fact that I was telling the editor in chief like, yo, I want to cover football, and basketball. This obviously isn't a football school. But I covered women's badminton and men's golf. And he's like, okay, well, what are your teams? I was like, I'm a Raiders fan. I'm from Oakland. And then that's when he's like, our sports editor is a Raiders fan. And and that was me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there you go. That was me. <laughs> now, Lawndale High School, right, Kenny? Yep. Cardinals. All right. All right. State champs. So now we've gotten the connection. We so uh, we got the connection, and now we'll, we'll we'll slide over to Pete Camarillo, his story. Uh, what what uh, I feel like James Lipton from the Actor Studio. What was the path that led you to the San Fernando Valley, Peter? Oh boy, so similar to Kenny, you know, I played football in high school. I I was solid, you know. I ended up being a starter my senior year, but I wasn't six three. I wasn't didn't want to be over three hundred pounds, and so for me it was kind of like football was always kind of a, a means to an end. And so that last year, I actually remember uh, once football season was over, I made the switch my sixth period from weightlifting to newspaper, and you know, kind of my coaches didn't like it. They were like, you know, linemen usually take longer to develop. You should keep playing. You should keep practicing. Um, you know keep going. You got a chance to get on at a JC. Um, and which is another connection that me and Kenny have with Boise state. Uh, but my cousin is actually uh, Boise state. Great. He's now the defensive coordinator at Oregon, but my coaches have also coached him. So they knew what kind of bloodlines I came from and just really wanted me to keep playing. But ultimately I started doing the newspaper thing. You know, I had always loved writing. I grew up watching the horn. I grew up listening to the jungle. Those were my things. Those were really what inspired my love for sports journalism, sports information, sports content. I pretty much applied to different places. I missed the deadline for San Jose. I got waitlisted at Fresno and San Diego. I got into Northridge and Fullerton and UCR. And I was like, well, I'm from Corona, I'm from Riverside. Northridge is like the farthest. But it's not too far to where, like, oh, if I need something, I can come home. 
So I found a Northridge. You know, luckily it was, you know, a way better journalism program that I ever could have imagined. And started doing the newspaper thing again and eventually was like, uh, I need to figure something else out in terms of I don't really want to work for ramen noodles my whole life. So that's when I started playing a little bit more with podcasting. Kenny and I, as you mentioned, linked up. We started doing various podcasts for the Sundial. And then once I graduated, you know, Kenny was still going to school. But but I was really, you know, hungry to, to keep working on my voice, keep working on my content skills. And, and Kenny was pretty much like, why not? So we started doing a podcast. It was under a totally different name, totally different platform. We did that for about a year. And a year later, we pretty much looked at our content and was like, well, what do we actually do good? Like, what is our show actually about? And it was like pretty much about balancing touchdowns from the week, you know, the NFL with tangents about life, about what we're going through, our experience and stuff like that. Much so like you said, you know, I'm much more of the straight shooter. Kenny's much more of the tangents. So so naturally, it all just kind of evened out. I remember I got to know you guys, obviously, on Twitter, because you guys were covering CSUN when I was doing the games at CSUN. Yeah. Um, it's funny, I sound like I've retired, but it's like, it's like we just don't know what's happening with college sports yet. We'll get to that as well. But <laughs> what, I exactly. what I found interesting was you guys, to me, and hopefully you'll take this as a compliment, because I mean it as a compliment, were like a West Coast version of DeSus and Miro, you know? Mm. And... Because those guys are New York guys, and I'm a Jersey kid. About that. So I kind of understood. I kind of understood what they were talking about because they're like age-wise, we're they, they and I are roughly the same age, so we have a lot of the same media and musical references. With you guys, it was different for me because you guys are younger, and you guys are from the West Coast. But that was cool because I was able to learn from you know from you guys, you know. And that, that I think to me is the coolest thing because podcasts are so easy to do now. And there are all these jokes about podcasts, about his crack guys cracking mics and just going on. But it's like, especially, you know, like, you know, they, they, the big guys, we all you know, know who do the big podcast, but like, you know, Bomani Jones is a guy who I think is incredible because he produces content online. He, you know, he writes for ESPN and does stuff on ESPN, but his podcast content touches on some of the stuff but he always brings something new to the table on each particular podcast and that's what i was that's why i think i like the tangents better because when you guys are talking about football you, you know don't get me wrong you know your stuff you're fairly unique you're passionate raider guys i get that but the the outside subjects to me are what's interesting and but the weird you know like I, our brains kind of work the same way i love the weird parallels you know that you guys kind of bring together on some of those podcasts um but i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you peter what have you been doing since graduation what's kind of been the the, the grind for you since you finished up at csun Ooh, yeah so since i graduated in 2015 um i was really kind of presented with the situation to where it was like okay do i keep doing the sports editor thing which i had done at the sundial had done it at a very high level you know i'm very proud to say that I was part of the first editor class that really transitioned over from daily print to daily web. You know, when I was a staff writer, we did daily print. And so I got a little bit of that. But then when we moved forward, you know, I was kind of, I actually won the Trailblazer Award for a lot of my digital strategies. You know, I was 
I literally published every single day, even on the weekends, established brands, all that sort of stuff. So it really came down to, okay, do I want to keep doing this, which I know I'm good at. I know I can keep doing it. You know, I had also received recognition for being part of our breaking news coverage. But the the offers I were getting, I was getting were, you know, in Iowa, were in New Mexico, were in Ohio. And, and for me, you know, being here on the West Coast, being in L.A., being in SoCal is so much of my identity. And not just that, but, you know, I come from a really unique family background situation to where the cost of me being away from my teen brothers and sisters, you know, wouldn't it wouldn't have equaled out with me being in Iowa, you know, for a year or two years or however long it would have taken me to come back. So I found the marketing. Um, I did TV advertising for uh, a middle scale agency. You know, we did all sorts of things. They they were coincidentally looking for a sports guy because they were doing a lot of FanDuel, True Car stuff at the time. So it just worked out. I learned a lot about advertising, which, as we know, is a big part of the backbone of media. So I gained that expertise and took my journalism and took my journalism and media experience. Right now, I work in PR full time. All while also, you know, continuing to create content. You know, I'm, I'm a regular on Clutch Points. I'm a regular on Full Press Coverage. I write for sports. I've written for a thousand different other websites and also producing this podcast. I recently launched a newsletter, westcoastsports.substack.com, where you can subscribe. So, yeah, pretty much I've always been working. And, and but for me, you know, touchdowns and tangents is always, it's always been fun. You know, it's always where my heart is. You know, all the other stuff is great. You know, I love doing it. But touchdowns and tangents is probably where I'm my most true, authentic self. Let's start with touchdowns and tangents. So we were discussing before we, we turned the uh, mic on about – um, I was reading an article that came out last week. It was on Twitter. There's a lot of Twitter uh, buzz on it. Uh, Misha Yusefa, who is a UC Irvine graduate, my alma mater, mm. and she got a, got a great start to her career right out of school. NPR hired her to produce these podcasts. And, you know, it was a great podcast series. Um, and then she left for, for other greener pastures. But the at KPCC, which is the Pasadena uh yeah, Pasadena uh, NPR affiliate kept control of her content, and I guess she tweeted about it. And then other podcasters would start talking about, it. and particularly it was guys like you. It was young podcasters of color, you know, who said, "Hey, you know, I was with this network, and then I left, and they kept my content." So it's interesting that we were discussing because I was told by somebody who. A buddy, a buddy of mine who's an attorney who specializes in intellectual property, he said, never give up your content unless somebody's going to pay you for it. And he told me this you know, early on because he was kind of on the forefront. He got out of law school in 2000. So he was telling me, listen, this Internet stuff is going to be big. And he ultimately ended up working for Hulu for a while. And he mm. said, make sure if you're producing content for the Internet that you don't give it up. Like, if you're going to give it up, make them pay you for it. Um, and so I don't know if you guys have read any of those threads that have come out in the last week or two on Twitter about it, but give me your feeling because, I mean, touchdowns and tangents strikes me as something that's kind of sticky content, right? It's something that the right uh, the, the right uh, company could take and, and get eyeballs on them for it, but it's something that you guys have created, you know? And without you don't have to give anything away you don't want to give away. We'll start with Kenny. It's like with regard to monetizing it, have you guys been approached about monetizing it, and do you guys have – reservations about giving up 
that very original brand that you guys have really established the last you know two three years or so ironically enough early on there was um there were a couple different offers uh to where someone said well you would do they saw us already doing the podcast but we were really still like in our first year year and a half and people were like well you know we would want you to you know come on you can do this for us and we were like oh we're kind of reluctant because we were like well we still want to keep the name even though like we hadn't gotten the touchdowns and tangents yet but some of the core like property of the show like certain segments of our show are named after previous versions of the actual show so like (laughs) take or tangent at one point was the show unnecessary toughness was the title or mixer and mixer they just came up with the whole thread uh, about people about um someone being mistreated on mixer and somebody else saying no 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 no. that's mixer the twit that's the mixer the strip streaming app yeah so it's like we were on was mixler with the mixler Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I always get those confused. I'm like, eh. this yeah, is this is that's why I like the podcast right here. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's I just don't want to. I just don't want to unnecessarily drag a tech company. I mean, I'm all yeah, for dragging yeah. tech companies. Just let's drag the right one. Yeah, I had, just couldn't get the name right, but yeah, so it was him, and then like it was another guy who was offering something, but he wasn't. He was just saying, oh well, you know, you you would give us your version of the show we play it but i'm like how would monetization work like it just and it felt kind of one-sided like we had all these questions and this person in particular they they hate when you have questions kenny they hate when you have questions ken especially when it's like well okay we'll be partners but we're not gonna do a whole show for you we already do a whole show and that's kind of just always been our thing like we're on the good news. You know, we, we are partners with X squad affiliates. Shout out to them. Shout out to, you know, full press coverage shout out to the good news radio station. It's a black owned radio station. We were literally doing radio shows and I was in school. Cause I had left and went back and I was gone for like two and a half years and I came back and Pete and I were doing the show still commuting from the Valley and everywhere else. They approached us cause a mutual friend, a friend of mine, hit them up on Instagram, the good news, and said, you know, I think you guys are looking for podcasts. You should check them out. Now, when we went up to, you know, the good news, and they talked about how, okay, here's what, you have a studio, you know, we're not going to control any of your intellectual property. You know, you're just pretty much paying for studio time, and you do your thing here, and then our partnership is that you do a show with the good news. I think that it's kind of more what we were always looking for because after that first year and a half, we were like, okay, we got something. Now, how are we going to keep doing this? And that's when we we switched from Mixler to a bunch of other things. And then we got on um, Spreaker. So the biggest thing with that, with the people who don't want to lose their intellectual property, I think they got to realize like if you're working for somebody, yeah, it's your baby, it's it's your idea, but it's kind of like you're giving it up for adoption, as long as you're not on your own. If you're on your own, yeah, it's your kid, you gotta feed it, you gotta, you know, bathe and make sure it's, you know, healthy every day, and it's a living, breathing thing that you're responsible for, but if you're doing it for a corporation, it's never truly yours. You're kind of taking care of somebody else's kid. Yeah. And that's the, that's the thing that people have to realize, is they, um, even with, um, 
uh, Barstool with, uh, I think what was it, Who's Your Daddy? Like, they finally restructured that, but one of the girls is not on the show anymore now. You gotta realize it's it's you're taking care of somebody else's kid. Anytime you want a major corporation, if you if they come to you and say we want you to do a show for us, instead of you saying okay, you have a show, we want to sponsor you or work with you, people have to really pay attention to the language. Yeah. Because business is an agreement, whether you do business with somebody or not. Pete, you've been on the business side of it. Where do you stand on this whole thing? I'm sure you've researched a little bit about the podcast world and how things are going. I don't know if you saw the threads that were going around Twitter this week about this topic, but I'm curious as to from a from a guy who's been on the advertising side, how do you see it? Because obviously you guys have maintained integrity. You guys have maintained independence. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's I can't answer for everybody. You know, I like I look at, let's, let's say, the ringer or I look at, you know, Joe Budden. And those guys and how they've just gotten deals, you know, to be exclusive with Spotify. And, you know, on one hand, I can't knock them for, you know, getting 100 million or 10 million or whatever they got. You know, everybody has their price. Now, on the other hand, for me, would I make that decision knowing that I've already created a brand, a staple where I could essentially, you know, create my own podcast network or my own podcast platform? No, because... Personally, for me, I value having that business. But, you know, other people, they don't want to be stuck selling their own ads. You know, they don't want to be stuck building their own website. They don't want to be stuck doing all the promotional side. And to be honest, I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, we're constantly learning and working through and struggling with is like, okay, yeah, we do a show once a week, but it's not just doing that one show. It's okay. What other content can we create on top of that two hours that we invested in just recording and cutting the show? And so that's really ongoing thing. And so when, when people want to go to these big tech companies or these big networks and get that extra manpower and the extra resources, you know, I can't knock them for that. But at the same time, you know, for me personally, I would rather go the independent route, even if it's harder even if it's longer, you know, I think it's more fruitful. And as far as, you know, people, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like anything that we do, you know. If I do an article for, you know, clutch points or full press coverage, it's, it's clutch points. As much as it's my byline, as much as it's, you know, my point of view and my perspective, I'm giving it to them. They're buying it for me. So it pretty much goes with the same thing. Like, the best thing you can do to combat that is go to a place that will both give you both, right? They'll give you your own podcast, but they're not going to get mad at you if you have, you know, your own adjacent, you know, five minute, 10 minute podcast that's similar, whatever, you know, that's, that's the ideal situation to end up in a place where, you know, you have the resources and the things you need, but they also give you the freedom to create on your own so that you can, you know, cross over in both ways, both lanes. Let's be fair, though. Ringer calls you guys and says, $10 million, I want to buy tons of ten. I, I have a feeling that both you guys signed that deal, right? Uh, I mean, that, that's kind smart, of Smart, Kenny, negotiate. Yeah, he's good. Always, <laughs> go, always negotiate up. You know? My friends actually like, asked me that question before, and, you know, well, obviously... It's kind of low. I mean, obviously... I mean, it's hard because it's not just, okay, you know, 
we want to buy where touchdowns and tangents is going. You know, we think if we give you all these voices and all these resources that, hey, you know, you can reach the top of the iTunes chart. It's that, you know, you also got to pay us for the fact that, like Kenny was saying, you know, we started this shit in the house. You know, yeah. we started this Pause shit, it. Kenny going two, three, four hours on the bus just to record a podcast. Right. And, you know, that's the sort of blood, sweat, and tears that, also has to be accounted for and so you know regardless of whatever the number is you know that's the other thing you know there's two of us so that's something that we have to work out together between us but i mean i, I mean would, the, i wouldn't say no well no it, it's funny no, it's fu- no but I, I like how you guys are thinking go ahead kenny sorry i wouldn't just be like no i'm not open to any deal like of course not you don't shut down good business if it's being offered but if somebody said hey i'll give you 10 million dollars to change your name and you can never it's never yours ever again. It's mine forever, and I'll get residual money off of it. Well, how are you going to negotiate that? Right. Are you willing to give up your name, like right. your own, your first name that your parents gave you? Right. And like, the other, and the you're other, giving, part you're giving of it up is, more than that. And the other part of it is, I think at the end of the day, you know, anybody could could take the touchdowns of Tanja's name and brand, and like, yeah, you know, we wouldn't want that because we put in so much work. But at the end of the day, the, the value of the podcast is me and Kenny. So, you know, if we yeah. call it the Pete and Kenny show, people are going to listen to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like right. Joe no, it, yeah. And it's, yeah. Joe changed his name. His podcast. Right, right. I, there are three examples come to mind for me, and they're all from different areas of business. You know, there was the Microsoft deal, you know, when Bill Gates decided, okay, we're not going to sell, we're going to license software. We're not gonna we're not gonna make our money selling hardware. We're gonna license the software, and that was a great decision. The other one I remember is you know Star Wars George Lucas, where he wanted to retain the merchandising rights, and you know in 1976 that didn't mean a whole lot. And now you have movies that are basically made for merch, you know, so they can merchandise them. And then the oh. other one, the great one of the greatest business deals in sports was the Spirits of St. Louis. I'm gonna hold up the T-shirt. It's just a coincidence. <laughs> I didn't plan on doing this. But the spirits of St. Louis, <laughs> who were in the in the ABA, uh, yeah. when the NBA absorbed the ABA, they didn't have enough money to get into the league. But they wanted it. They knew what was going on. They wanted a piece of the pie. So they said, "Listen, in perpetuity, what we want is we want the TV share of the ABA teams in the NBA." This is in 1976 as well. And the NBA said, yep. "Whatever, let's do it." You know. And I think about four or five years yeah. ago. After 40 years of them getting NBA money, they got bought out. I think it was 500 million bucks just to go away, you know. So those are the kind of things you got to think about with the residual aspect of it. It's funny. I just you know, before I got and on the sports phone, sports still got, hasn't forgave St. Louis. No, they haven't. I feel bad, bad for St. Louis. The NBA hasn't. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was talking. There was there was a deal with some uh, property that I'm involved with, and it was like it was a negotiation going back and forth about exactly what you're talking about, about the residual aspect of it, about a piece of content that's going to be used on the internet and widely after we record it. So I'm like, wait a minute, we need to account for the usage of it, you know, and obviously SAG and all these, you know, after have these scales, but it's hard, you know, with, with the internet now, it's just so hard because you and I are going to, I'm going to put this podcast up and somebody could take an audio clip of you guys off of Spotify or iTunes or whatever, and then put it in their content and how to, you know, how do we manage that, right? Uh, and, the, and, the and, the other side, and the other side of it is, you know, 
whatever. Let's say we pop off 20 years from now and people go back and look at this interview as a start. And all of a sudden, you know, 20 years later, you're getting this bump of traffic. But that's right. yours because this is your platform. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, all right. Great topic. And I'm glad you guys had some insight on it. Let's bump to uh, a subject very near and dear to your guys' hearts. The CSUN journalism program. Okay, yeah. so and I listen. I, I don't want to get you guys in trouble, so I just want to. You guys can be as deep as you want to be, or you can just let it go. But what's interesting is that's the other thing that came up. There was a great thread from a gentleman who went to the journalism program at Northwestern. I think Kenny. I think you might have retweeted it. It's my maybe yep. how I saw it. David did. Um, yeah. Half my information I get is from Kenny's retweets, by the way. But uh, <laughs> but um, Thank he. You. Know, he was a young African-American guy who went to Northwestern, journal, one of the top journalism programs in the country. And let's just say his experience wasn't so ideal, you know. So, again, I don't want to get you guys in trouble. I don't want to have you guys name names if you don't want to. But, you know, I got a, I got a young African-American man, a young Latino man here who went through CSUN's journalism program. And you guys aren't the typical faces that are in that program. If I'm, you know, I don't want to overstep. You guys both did incredibly well and succeeded well, and you'll represent that program well. But I'm just curious as to what were your thoughts, you know, as young guys going in versus as now grizzled graduates who are in the field. What would you tell a young, you know, Kenny? What would you tell an 18 year old uh, Kenny, uh, Pete? What would you tell an 18 year old Pete about getting into that game? Let me let me just say this first because. You know, I know Kenny's already going to say what he's going to say, so I'll just say this. Um, you know, I am on the Journalism Alumni Association board, so I'll just let that conflict be known. And so I am somewhat a face, you could say, and I am having these very real conversations with 18 and 19-year-olds. Now, at Good. the same time, you know, I also am obviously, you know, friends with Kenny. I know what he went through, so I also don't excuse anything that, that happens there or in any other institution because it happens everywhere that said you know as far as my experience i never really had a problem with csun um i think my biggest problem was always just how do we make money you know that was always the question that i was asking people in the program and that was always a question that nobody really had an answer to and oftentimes it was like well maybe somebody in this room will figure it out so that's kind of what took me on the path that I'm on now, you know, trying to figure out those solutions. And now that I am in that boardroom and now that I do have a little bit more oversight, you know, I, I, try, I try to always be the voice of both innovation and also the voice of, you know, people that, that come from a background like me, you know, whether that's poverty, whether that's being, you know, Latino, whether that is coming from a single parent or, you know, having to raise your, your brothers and sisters. So I always, I always keep that in mind. And whenever I, I, whenever we're talking about something, I always make sure that that comes up. Kenny B. Ah, yeah. Um, I am going to, I won't, I'm not going to name names specifically. Cause I mean, my experience, I feel like I had to go through what I went through just to kind of become the person I am regardless. And the people whose names that, you know, I could name, not really worth mentioning. Not really <laughs> worth my time anymore. So I'll just say, if I could tell my 18-year-old self one thing, I probably wouldn't be like, you know what, do football one more time. Just because... <laughs> 
Like, just one more try. You could still be a journalist, but just give it one more try. Because I got injured my junior year. I broke my foot, like fractured my ankle, and I spent my whole senior year trying to rehab and, like, family situation, things kind of happened. My mom got screwed over her job. We ended up in motel rooms and stuff like that. So I never really capped that off the way I wanted it to. So I probably would have tried to play sport. But at 18, as far as uh, academically and the CSUN journalism department, because I, I pretty much um, went to about, I think, four different of the, like, the high school events where high school kids come out, you know, you critique their work and give them advice. And I pretty much would tell them, um, you need to figure out your niche in this world because not everyone is going to be on TV. Not everybody wants to be on TV. Uh, not everybody is the best writer, but some people are really great photographers, but you need to be as well-rounded as possible no matter what you do, because if you're well-rounded, you have a better chance to make money. And there's an old saying, you know, one trick pony ends up in the glue factory. I'd rather be a master, you know, maybe if you're not a master of all trades, but if you're a jack of trades, at least, you know, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you go through in this field, you always have a skill and a tool set to fall back on. And like even in my case, when I was at the Sundial, you know, after Pete graduated, like yeah, I was I had you know writing responsibilities, but I tried to pretty much create a podcast network for people, like to where my staffers were, you know, not only were they writing and having to cover it, but they had to go into the podcast room and talk for 30 minutes about their sport and their their section, and yeah. It may have seemed like, oh, this is kind of overkill at the time, but most of the people I know who were doing that, who were writers under me, they went on to jobs at like Fox and all other types of places, and they used that same skill set. So that was always my mindset going in. But in my case, it was kind of twofold. It's, it's bittersweet because for all the great um, – I had a lot of great experiences in the journalism department not even going to pretend like those things didn't exist. My friends, some of my best friends in life, I met there. Um, so I can't ever just wipe that part of my life away. But the unfortunate in, the unfortunate part of it is, you know, like you said, there's not many people who look like me and Pete in that department. And if there are, there are not many positions of power to necessarily talk back to students and and let them know, like, hey, like you're you're seen in this department, and your opinion on things matters. So or they case, are, but they're or they are, but they're, you know, they're not. They're written off. They're not taken as seriously because you exactly. know whatever whatever institution or or culture you're in, you know, at some point when you're always the person speaking up, you're always the one raising your hand, and you. You just get targeted. You get labeled as the problem when you get tuned out. Exactly. And in my case, I'll just jump straight to the long and short of it. There was, You can look at the timeline, November 2015, when the Mizzou football um, uh, protesting broke out, when the football team was like, we're not going to play. Um, if you don't you know, do right by us and get rid of the school president and everybody else, that sparked a whole nationwide call. And I have a bunch of friends 
who were journalists, journalism students, activists. You know, they never, they never um, let go of that. So I knew people who were like saying, hey, they're setting up protests. We know you work at the school paper. You know, you know everybody anyway. Because I've like, it got to a certain point where like the vice president of the school was coming to me, talking to me on a first name basis. Like we've known each other forever. And that was kind of weird. But also like I took that with the sign of, you know, respect and I was serious about my role on campus. So when people saw me, if they ever needed information, I'd be like, you can go to this person, you can go to that person. That was just something that I always relied on. And it kind of goes back to me and the whole networking and going to college, free food. You meet people and you talk to people <laughs> and like that's how you kind of build, like I had to build up my networking skills and I did that. And when it came down to, you know, that semester, November 2015, um, there was a bunch of protests that happened on campus and along the short of it, uh, the editor-in-chief at the time blamed me for a bunch of different protests I had nothing to do with. Like, and then the publisher of the paper at the time pretty much co-signed everything he was doing that semester. I wasn't the only person who was, you could say, was on his, uh, his, his bad list. Um, he would give editors power and then take it away. He did a lot of things broke sundial rule books and protocols and all that and i dealt with that and me and a friend of mine we had this thing where we were like it's only week 10 it's only week 11 and we were just counting down to the end of the semester and in this particular case that chief was totally wrong and everything he did and pretty much came down to it he told me right before he fired me the day after the protest that happened at csun november 15th said, you can't be a black journalist and work at the Sundial but have all these connections to these other groups. And I was like, one, that's literally, like, to fire me and I'm getting paid by the school, technically. That's literally a lawsuit you don't want. And the second thing was, I was like, um, you would want someone who's connected in the community knows what's going on. Because the Sundials had a history of where black students and black organizations on campus, I felt like they weren't um, properly being covered and it showed there was a black house story that got done that sparked a lot of controversy that had a lot of people mad people who were being interviewed and when those black students saw somebody who worked at the sundial which would be me guess who got the brunt of all that anger and I said look I don't write this like I was I literally never wrote a story about black issues at uh, CSUN the whole time I was at the sundial it was kind of just a a known thing that I couldn't do and I wasn't allowed to do. And it took the president of an organization, a friend of mine of um, NABJ to pretty much come out and say, yeah, you can't do that. You can't tell him he can't write stories around black students. And I was the only black editor on the paper. So there was a lot of racial animus and microaggressions that were going on that just surrounded that happened before I even got, you know, removed from my position. And, pretty much proved my innocence with the department chair. The problem that happened was that she was kind of racially tone deaf to a lot of things I was saying. It was like, okay, um, you had an editor-in-chief who said, I literally can't be a black journalist and be in black journalism organizations and deal with things that are happening on campus. But the story that they published about the protest that happened on campus at CSUN, they got all that information from me. 
and I went through all the right proper channels, all the information I got. I got behind the scenes information, video, and I gave it all to the news editor at the time. And there was a bunch of controversy about, oh, well, it looks like a conflict of interest. I was like, okay, it could look like a lot of things, but if I am telling you I'm innocent and showing proof that I'm innocent, and the editor-in-chief just didn't like me, that's really what it came down to. So I pretty much got relieved in that position. I was done wrong and got to the point where the former president of the national chapter of NABJ came to my defense and talked to the department chair and she had a problem with me because of that. And when I uh, went to go to mediation, the, um, the person who was actually mediating at one point was like, Kenneth didn't set this event up. Like me and another journalism professor set this event up. So I was getting blamed for stuff that I wasn't there. I had nothing to do with. It was just like one huge, just Salem witch trial things I got blamed for. And I'm like, all this is, is either around my blackness or my ability as a journalist. But it's clearly not about my ability as a journalist. And it's about my blackness. But the issue kept getting conflated. And nothing in, on my behalf was... It, really, it was never really... Nothing was really done to rectify anything and make me feel whole on my own. I just had to live with that decision. But I also came up with a list of like 10 things that the department really needed to work on because I felt like if they if they have gotten better at it at the time, I was like, you guys are really toned up to what black students are going through in this department. They get shut down. Well, luckily, so, your your podcast host is now on the board so he can make sure this kind of stuff doesn't happen. But I will say on, on your side, it, that was kind of like a trial by fire uh introduction into what journalism can be you know what's the old it's the quote i think it's orwell's quote about journalism is printing what nobody wants read the rest is all public relations you know so it just seems like you know and, and that's why i missed the 90s and i wasn't a i wasn't a print guy i was a radio guy and you know it was a different just politically it was a very different environment then but i had a couple times people say are you sure you want to say that on the air and i'm like hey i'm gonna say it if you want to get rid of me, you can fire me, you know, and then I would go on and say it. There'd be a whole lot of a hullabaloo and then it would just calm down. Now, part of that was because I had allies that I cultivated, you know, within the working environment. But part of it also is, you know, do you want to go? Is that the pill you want to die on? Some loudmouth exactly. college kid on a radio. Do you want to suppress him out of fear of, you know, which wouldn't have happened. It was silly stuff. It wasn't the heavy stuff you guys were dealing with, which is a perfect dovetail into what's going on now, um, what's been going on in this country for the last three to four weeks. You guys are young. You're at the forefront of it. And I want to say this, because I work with a lot of young people in sports media. Guys in your age group in particular get hammered a lot. You know, there's the, you know, whatever, the millennial, whatever. But I'll say this. You guys' taste in hip-hop can be suspect. You guys are on your phones way too much. You know, some of the stuff you wear is crazy, but I will give your generation credit on this. And I tell this to everybody, me and Alan talk about this all the time. Alan's this Meister, my broadcast partner, a little bit older than I am. And he said, what this, you know, people complain about kids transferring. And it, ha it shows up in college athletics a lot. What kids now can do better than ever is spot a phony. You know, what you guys really can do is spot a phony. You're not afraid to call it out. And that's, I think, what we're seeing going on right now with a lot of the stuff that's, that's been happening 
uh, since the murder of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis. So I'm curious from both you guys, um, A, as journalists, and B, with regard to your backgrounds, come at me. Let's do a mini touchdowns and tangents. And I know you've already done your – I wanted to wait because I know you guys did your own episode on it. I didn't want to steal your thunder. Let's let's jump into it right now. Kenny and Pete, go. Uh, <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, first thing I got to say is there's millennials and then there's Gen Zs. Gen Zs are-, are the ones who are eating um, Tide Pods. But they've turned it around. Right. In the streets, like they – they mean well. They're good people. But me, Pete and I are millennials. 92, yeah. we're 90 babies. Um, and I think, yeah, a lot of people kind of, especially in college, I know me and Pete ran into this a lot, and just even in the working world, millennials get this bad rap of we're lazy, but we're the most socially conscious, hardworking. I worked three jobs my last semester of college and paid for my last semester of college. I was working 90 hours a week and commuting from the South Bay to Northridge to Santa Monica to LAX and doing the podcast and doing two classes. One of them was a photography class. I was doing all that that last semester just to be done. So, and I've seen how hard Pete works. I've seen me, Pete and I did literally, and this is all like stuff you can go look on the sundial there. Um, if it's still on their um, SoundCloud where we literally went, on Thanksgiving and did a Black Friday episode. Like my, I'd say my age bracket, we are some of the most hardworking because we've had no other choice because we have to learn a multitude of things because we have to not only try to keep the older generations in the know and let them know that, yes, we're confident in what we do and we eventually are going to usurp you just based off, you know, how things go. People get older, fields grow and people change. But mostly, we're not, like, I'm a black dude from East Oakland who grew up in the South Bay. Pete is a Mexican dude who grew up in Riverside, but has lived in L.A. most of his life. We have a bunch of different experiences, and we're not just something that you can put in a box. And a lot of people don't realize, especially I've seen a lot where um, some of these schools and places are going to, like, get a diversity officer of equity and diversity, whatever. And that usually doesn't work because they just put someone who's not a white person in that position and says, here, handle all our, all the past sins of our school or our, our whatever. Like CSUN tried that and it failed during the time I was going through the whole sundial stuff. They literally got an equity and diversity officer and like a, she quit, I think like a semester. In. It didn't even last long. So what people got to realize is, and you can even just look at this by watching TV, especially with all the things that are going on, police brutality, white supremacy, all this, and you see all these news anchors. How many of them are black? Because if I, when I turn on Channel 2 and all these other channels, I don't see a lot of black journalists out in the field. It's not that they're not there, because when sports comes on, they're anchoring. When lifestyle comes on, they're anchoring. When music comes on, they're anchoring. But when times are serious news, and that's been a huge well, issue in general, and the journalism field and in media where a lot of black people and you know, Latinos, non-white people don't necessarily get the shine of being the ones talking about a community they're actually from. You're hearing it from people who aren't from the community, just reporting it on face value. So you miss a lot. Well, 
it's not that they're not there. They're just not in the prominent roles that you expect. They're not the anchor. Exactly. They're, you know, working on the weekends or they're working the overnights or, you know, they don't have a page one column. You know, you can look up the facts. Like there's only a handful of nationalized syndicated calmness of color, period. Yeah. And a lot of that opinion stuff is, is what drives our society's thoughts. And so, you know, just to tie it all together, you know, what, what we're talking about here is is you're seeing now in the national limelight, a lot of these black journalists, you know, and you talked about it with the the um, Medill guy, the Medill guy sharing his experiences. You know, all these people are now coming out and sharing, you know, stories similar to Kenny or, you know, they're all talking about the inherent dialogues that they've had over the course of their journalism experience of where okay, is this, do I need to say something about this? Does this, do I, do I specifically need to be the one to say it? And so, you know, to Kenny's credit, you know, he's come a long way from that whole situation. And, you know, you can tell just by the way that he talks about it now. But, you know, my advice to him and, and really to anybody and what I see from this whole thing happening is, you know, these one, these experiences you have, they're not it. You know, they're, they're not the end. You know, oftentimes they're a chapter. And, and so you just have to do your best to, to take the lessons you can and, and continue surviving. And furthermore, you know, I was just listening to a topic about this on from um, NPR. You know, it's like, what are we really saying when we're saying journalists are objective anyways? You know, because it's an institution and like any institution you know, in our society, it stems from white supremacy. And so when you go back in history and you look at what journalism really started as, and it really started as not being objective. It was about being subjective. It was about all these small religious papers having different point of views. And so now, you know, I think it's it's fortunate that we're starting to get back to that. And, you know, you're seeing that, especially with podcasts and newsletters, you know, people developing their own perspective, their own eyes their own thoughts and sharing that with the world it's no longer just about you know being objective and you know trying to give the person who says it's raining the same amount of time as the person who says it's not raining when we both look outside and see it's not fucking raining exactly (laughs) and that's and this is um it's vital because i mean if all these black journalists all have the same story. Like, there's a story, I think, in the Pittsburgh Gazette about how they weren't let black journalists go out and cover the protests. Like, there's a multitude of reasons for that. Newsrooms have been predominantly white male run. And when it's not my role, white male run, it's white female run. And I was even told one time by someone when I was in school, like, I know I know what you're going through as a fellow minority. I was like, no, you're... You're an old white person who's out of touch. You just think you understand what I'm going through, but you can't really relate. We don't listen to the same music. We didn't come from the same socioeconomic background. And you're trying to tell me what diversity looks like. And I'm telling you, you don't know what diversity looks like. It's like when people say they don't see color. Okay, then you're blind. But if if I I put on a ski mask to get you in the head and, and the cop said, what color was he? He's black. All of a sudden, you know what color looks like. Or if you have people covering stories about kids being locked in cages and you're talking to a Latino reporter and you assume, okay, they're biased because they're Latino. 
No, they probably are the best person to talk to in that situation because they either come from that community or they can understand. And a lot of times you got people, journalists. And you're going to get those people to open up more when you're part of that community. Because it's still, well, it feels more authentic. You know, like you said, you know, you can spot out a phony. So it's like when somebody, you know, the the quote unquote majority, you know, comes up to you and says, hey, you know, I see you're doing this. You know, can you talk to me about it? You know, just the way you talk about it to that person is different than if a person, you know, of your same color comes up and dabs you up and says, hey, man, I appreciate what you're doing out here. Blah, blah, blah. It means a lot. You know, I work for the student paper. Do you mind, you know, just talking to me a little bit more about it? Like, you know, so even just the, the way it's set up is totally different. And so, you know, we can't just just say that because, you know, somebody has no flavor or no skin in the game that it's going to mean more than somebody who does, because it, it really doesn't. You know, yeah. and I for, for for you guys being young, it's a kind of a double-edged sword. I always remember there's yeah. a great movie. I don't know if you guys have ever seen In the Heat of the Night with Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier when they go to yeah. solve the crime and they're they're at loggerheads. They don't know where they're going to find this clue. And Sidney Poitier tells Rod Steiger, "Listen, I'm going to go where you can't go." Meaning he's going to go into the black neighborhood. He's going to ask questions that if the white police sergeant went in there and asked, he would get crickets. But Sidney Poitier, Mr. Tibbs is going to get that the answer. And, and that works both ways. You know, it's like I go to Pete and I say, Pete, go cover this immigration rally. And it's like I'm sending the Latino dude to go cover a Latino issue. There, it, there's nuance to it. And both you guys brought up this point, which I thought was great. It was about um, institution, right? It's really about the institution in the end. You can hire as many people of color, minority, whatever you want to call it. But as long as the institution remains the same and is unwilling to change, uh, we're, we're you know we're at the same spot. I had a I had a chance to 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 see Jerry West speak this some past summer, and he comes awesome. in there and you know he tells his story. I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard all the stories. He grew up in a very abusive home when he, he was a child, but he talked about getting the medal the medal of freedom from from Trump, and he talked about oh I'm a patriot blah blah blah, and then we're all kind of like is he gonna roll into the MAGA thing? Then he steps up and says, hey, I never want to hear anybody say they don't see color, you know, because he's like, I've worked with so many people and I've learned so much from all these various people that I've learned. He's like, I just see a person as that person they are and allow, you know, and I feel it a privilege to allow me to learn. And in that whatever 90 seconds that he was talking, I can see why he was successful as a player and why he was successful as a general manager. Uh, but the other, the other part about it is, and you guys can probably speak to it is within their own community, you know, like within the Latino community, within the African American community, um, there's differences, there's heavy differences. Neither community is a monolith, you know, I mean, myself grow, you know, growing, I mean, growing up is like, you know, you get, you know, it's the line from, uh, uh, notorious when, when when Biggie's talking about Tupac, he's like, you know, you ask ten people about Tupac and get ten different stories. You know, you know, Kenny, I go to your high school. You only got two albums. <laughs> but I mean, I go That's to your high I'm school. And talk Wait, to what did you just say? <laughs> we only got two Biggie albums. That's all I'll say. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a like, discussion we're gonna have next week. <laughs> I mean, hey, I I go to. I go to either of your high schools and I talk to 10 people. I'm going to get 10 unique experiences, although you would think 
geographically, demographically, you know, people would be the same. I mean, think about your high school. You know, I grew up kind of in a suburban middle class high school, whatever. You know, we had 250 people graduating class. There are probably 200 stories there. You know, nobody's exactly the same. And I think people kind of miss on that. I'm wondering what your thoughts are, both from a personal perspective, also from a journalistic perspective. I mean, I mean, for me, you know, I don't want to discredit, you know, a white person who wants to go out and cover an immigration rally or a protest because, you know, that is still important. But I think it also is understanding, am I the best person to do this? Is there somebody else in the room who could do it better? If not, then, yeah, definitely get your ass out there and make it happen. But, you know, you just have to think critically and that that that's really being objective, you know, looking at yourself in the mirror constructively and saying, you know, where are my lines? And, you know, as a journalist, I left this whole side of my story out. But while I was working at the Sundial, you know, I was interning with the Clippers. So, you know, that was one of the first questions they asked me in the group interview. You know, you're a writer, you're a reporter, you've done all this. How are you going to deal with having this sort of access? And, you know, for me, it was easy. You know, this is my favorite team. I want to work in sports. This is an opportunity. So I know that when I'm here, I'm not Pete the reporter. I'm Pete the intern. And so those roles are completely different. So now, even now, when I write a column about the Clippers, I always say I worked within the organization, even if it was at the lowest level, even if it was only for a year. Because as you can see, I got these jerseys on my wall. Like, I got too much Clipper shit to not be a Clipper fan. And no championship trophies. And it's the same thing when I write about the Raiders. Like, I... Like, I can write about the Chargers and the Rams because I follow them and I, I watch them. But when I write about the Raiders, I'm writing from a totally different perspective because I'm not an outsider. I'm an insider. I'm on Raiders Twitter. I've been a part of yeah. it for, for, you know, 10, 15 years. And and even so, like you said, you know, just, just culturally, you know, for me, um, my parents – my dad primarily, you know, he grew up in, in Paramount when it was Compton. So, you know, he grew up around black people in black culture. And so for us, they didn't grow up speaking Spanish. You know, they didn't, their parents didn't teach them that because they didn't want them to be wetbacks. And so it's for me now growing up, pe- people see my last name, you know, people see my skin. And even when I worked at Sears, they'll walk up to me talking fluent Spanish, and then I'll tell them, you know, no habla espanol, and they'll go, huh, what, what's your last name? And so even now when I go to these organizations, even like, you know, NHJ or CCNMA, it's like, you know, I don't necessarily click or fit in right away because, you know, I don't have that same, you know, connection to Hispanic or Latinx culture. And it's something that I'm learning now, having, you know, spent eight years in the San Fernando Valley and, and you know, learning what, what Riverside and Corona is and, and knowing more about what, what those areas are. But it wasn't something that was given to me. And so that's part of also why me, me, me and Kenny, you know, connect is because, you know, I understand black culture because I've grown up in it. I've lived around it. But I also don't pretend to be black. You know, I respect the differences. I respect that I'm a guest. And and that's why me and Kenny are able to click because I'm authentic and honest. And and regardless of if you're a journalist, content creator, whatever, 
you know, for me, that's my biggest value is, you know, be yourself, be who you are. Don't try right. to be phony. Don't try yeah. to be fake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just also want to point out that, Pete, I think it's great that you have all those jerseys on your wall, but there are absolutely no championship banners. <laughs> so just keep that in mind. <laughs> you, know, you, know who's, you know whose house you're really in. The Lakers know that. Yeah. just renting it, but it's all good. But, um, yeah, I mean, like. It's all right. Past, I still got the bean. I still got the bean right there. That's 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 uh, mandatory. But I mean, like growing up in the South Bay, like I when I grew when I moved out here from East Oakland in '99, it was kind of a culture shock for me because LA was just so laid back, but it's also dangerous as hell. Like you don't realize that you turn the corner, it's like oh some shit just popped off. Um, but it looks like a like you could take Rosecrans straight to the beach, but if you go the other way away from the beach. You know where you at. You better know where you at. Um, and in my case, going up, I grew up in Inglewood, lived in Hawthorne, in the South Bay. And like a couple of times I've had on uh, Londell High's head coach because um, I looked and I saw him at high school and I'm like, well, a lot of people I went to high school with, I think it was a class like 300. It was well knit. We all knew each other. But like most of the people our group around, most of my friends were Latino. I had black friends, but like, in my case, I could kind of relate to everybody just on different levels. Like, it was, yeah, I was an athlete in high school, but also people knew I was really smart, too. I had friends who were into music and all types of stuff. So because I was kind of, I had, like, my life kind of compartmentalized, when I went to, you know, be a journalist, I said, okay, yeah, I like hip-hop, but also know that I'm going to run into a different people my thing is i always want to know more about people who are totally different from me because it's boring to just hang around my same social group but i'm not ever getting to know anybody different than how am i ever really living life that was always kind of my thing so and it's funny because that's literally how one of my friends got his girlfriend was because i made him go to matador nights i was like look you're gonna go you're gonna have fun I'm going to do some reporting, but you just go and just meet people. And it's like, that's some of the craziest memories I've had is just going out there and just introducing myself to people I didn't know. And I think that's where you find a lot of common ground. Like with Pete, me and him bonded because I kept throwing out Boise State um, historical facts. And he's like, how do you know all this information? And I was like, (laughs) I I cried when Boise State beat Oklahoma. Like, Like, it was, so, I mean, it's one of those things where just, and being from, also being from the Bay Area, because it's so diverse down there, and, like, there's a thing, when when I first got out to CSUN, Pete would always be like, why do you say bruh all the time? I'm like, bruh, I just say bruh a lot, like, I'm from this (laughs) I call my mom bruh, my sister bruh, like, I call everybody bruh, and they're like, why are you calling me bruh? I was like, bruh, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, I, I've had you. I've had you guys for an hour. Before we get, keep going, what high school, Pete, in Corona? I went to the Eleanor Roosevelt High School. Oh, okay. For, for, for so who did you play for? Who did you play? So you really played for Burrell? Did you play for Tony Burrell over there? No, I played for uh, Bill Stacy. Oh, Stacy. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Bill yeah. Stacy. Um, yeah. We can talk some sports now, guys. I mean, it's been <laughs> heat, it's been heat, but all right, you guys are both Raiders guys. 
and I want to tell you. Kenny uh, depends on the. Uh, I'm a a lifelong Jet fan for nearly 40 40 years now. That's how old I am. Nearly 40 years with the Jets. But I'm a huge Al Davis fan. To me, to me, the. Football to me is about Joe Namath and Al Davis because the football we watch today was largely constructed in the mind of Al Davis and the arm of Joe Namath. If they left it to the Bears and the Browns, we'd be watching Nebraska crew cut fullbacks doing three yards in a cloud of dust. So I, I always give Al love. And uh, my guy, Steve Breck, who's the athletic trainer for CSUN, he's a huge Raiders guy too. So, um, okay. So, what? So, topic one Are we going to have an NFL season, guys? Go. Oh, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't. I don't I don't think it's looking like it either. I don't know how you expect people to play. I don't know how you expect people to remain six feet apart everywhere but their specific job. And then when you factor in all racial undertones, you know, it's really difficult for me to see it going. I think personally, the NFL kind of gave everybody a cop out, you know, by saying, we're sorry, here's a bunch of money. It's like, if I accept that from the NFL, then I have to accept that from everybody else, regardless of whatever history they have, you know, white supremacy and, and social injustice. So I guess I'm saying that to say maybe it might be better for them to take a year off and kind of let everything kind of just simmer down just a couple of notches. Honestly, um, I can't. Uh, I don't see it happening just for the sheer fact that I'm here in the South Bay and I've been paying attention to high school sports and the high schools aren't even really meeting like that. They have to come yeah. up with nuanced ways, like except for like in the richer areas where the, like, uh, like Orange County, because there's so much money and affluence out there, they're allowed to come back and start their high school seasons up. And then that means there's recruiting, recruiting, there's, there's, Recruiting is like almost a billion dollar industry because it's right in line with college sports. And if college athletes are like UCLA, Clemson just had what twenty three players test positive for COVID. UCLA, LSU, yeah, LSU, LSU. Texas, like probably even USC. You have all these different places, all these college athletes sitting up here saying. Now's the perfect time for us to utilize our power. We want a third-party medical practitioner because we don't trust our coaches. We don't trust the environment that has been created because I know people who had worse injuries than me, and they were horribly mishandled. And well, I think either way you look at it, you can't say they're, they're amateur if you're going to f- force them to play given all that we know is at risk and there's no money in exchange. Like, yeah. and, and California you can't say you care about them mentally and physically, and you're putting them in that exact situation. And college teams or college stadiums are supposed to sell beer at their games. The SEC, like these these schools have these hundred seat, hundred thousand seat stadiums, gonna sell liquor and they're gonna be six feet apart. Uh, Pete and I have both been drunk college students at a game. Um, I don't understand how that's gonna work. How are you gonna have a bunch of drunk people? <laughs> At a college game, let alone USC, UCLA, that touchdowns and tailgate last year was fantastic. Like, I don't see how 
people are going to be at these college games watching these players. It's going to look like pretty much a spring game. They canceled all the spring games already. Like the NFL doesn't even have it together on what's going to happen. It's a that's a trickle down thing. If the NFL is doesn't have a solid blueprint and college doesn't have a blueprint, high school's not going to have a blueprint. PD, and I think the fact uh, that the NFL is taking so long to get a blueprint is telling me that they're in denial, right? They think it's going to be football as usual when nothing is as usual. Like, nothing is going to be the same. So for us to pretend like football, this great American pastime is going to be the same, like, we're really lying to ourselves. And that tells me that they're probably preparing for it to not happen. I I was covering the XFL at the time. And we were getting ready to... You know, when the draft, before the draft was happening, I'm covering the XFL, going to games, talking to people, talking to other journalists. And then that happens, and we're just like, I know people who work in the XFL, they're like, we don't know. And if you can cancel a whole league that was actually on the upswing and looking like it was going to be successful long term, you're going to cancel that. You can't then have the audacity to tell me that football is going to work when you can't even get the NBA season going back. You can't like you have to cancel all of baseball track season. There's cats who are depending on scholarships to go to college. Maybe that next great player who might end up becoming a Hall of Famer. We'll never know their story now. You can't um, sit up here and have that. It's not going to work. You know, the NFL to me is the model, because if there's one league out there that can play without fans, it's the NFL because it's such a TV spectacle because of all that TV money. Now the owners aren't going to be happy because their stadiums are basically built to print money. I mean, the Jerry world in Dallas, it's all about people spending once they get in the door. But if they have, if push comes to shove, they can play a season and they can bite the bullet and, 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 and how the season, because they have all that TV money. And you know, somebody, but I'll, I'll give credit. One of the, it's a Bay area guys, a, brother of a friend of mine, Ted Ramey up from up in the Bay Area. I think he's on sick and KNBR or something. And he said, hey, you know, sports owners have made profits for going on, you know, 60, 70 years now. You know, if you're a business owner, you're not guaranteed a profit every year. And maybe this is one of those years you just sign off and take a loss because, yeah. of, you know, something that's out of your control. But I, I do think something is emerging. The bigger, the bigger question for me, and I'll press it to you guys, is it seems like we're having like a Kurt Flood moment where the players realize now in the NBA as well as the NFL, you know, baseball, I think, has been this way for a little bit. The players realize they hold the cards because to me, you know, from 12 year old kid watching, you know, like Dan Marino, and Eric Dickerson, the players are the game. And I think everything has been done over the last 30 to 40 years to convince the players they're not the game. And now all of a sudden with this pandemic, I think the players are figuring out, guys, we're the game here. Yeah, and and to your point, and I've had this and I've had this conversation, you know, with my dad about the NBA specifically, you know, a lot of people want to give Kyrie shit and I get it, you know, maybe it's not the best messenger, but I think he has a point. You know, if not now, then when? You know, like we were talking about institutions, you know, nothing really changes until ownership changes. And you know, this is essentially a hard reset. So if not now, then when? And, you know, regardless of what happens, what restarts, what doesn't restart, the thing for me, you know, covering the NBA, being in the Lakers press boxes, is if somebody gets sick, if LeBron gets sick, AD gets sick, Giannis gets sick, that undercuts the whole integrity of the entire tournament. 
And so would I do that for white owners? I don't know. But, you know, to my dad's point, he brings up the fact that, well, you know, you need guys like LeBron to want to give up their place in history. You know, is is LeBron going to want to say, I don't want to keep racing, breaking all these records to go to a startup league? For what? Even if it's the same money, which it probably won't be, you know, is that something that I could ask him to do if I'm his fellow player, his fellow man? Probably not. So so it's it's not as cut and dry as it as it seems. You know, I think especially right now, you know, we as millennials and Gen Zers, we want to just disrupt everything and, you know, own everything. And I, I think it could happen. I think there's enough black millionaires, Oprah to Diddy, that it could happen. But you know, uh, Oprah, pl- play, really players have to like make that. it happen. Regardless, Kenny. what I'm saying is the players have to want to do it and I don't know if they're willing to, to make that risk because we've seen even in CBA negotiations when people tell them two, three years in advance, hey, be ready for a lockout. Never happens. People go broke. People don't save their money. And you look yeah. at, I think some people we want to back it and some people are going to use their money to probably just put propaganda against it. And also, you got to understand that Look at who's everyone who's going to lose money if there's no season. College football is going to lose, what, about $4 billion. NFL lose about five and a half. How much money are these high schools in Texas going to lose when they have like a million-dollar stadium, million-dollar weight room? Um, how, how much poverty and is going to hit these cities when these kids who thought they had a scholarship as a way out now don't? Uh, what's going to happen with fantasy football? Like you talk about Pete gambling. How much yeah. money is Vegas going to lose? And the other the other thing that's crazy to me is, you know, we know so little about this virus. It's like, can we say teams or players who have already had it, are they at an advantage? Are they at a disadvantage? We don't really know. Do you drug test now? What well, if somebody died? I mean, the, the NBA says they're not going to drug test for weed, so... I guess that's antibiotic? one good thing out of this. <laughs> yeah. What if it's an antibiotic that might save your life that's illegal in the NBA, but you got COVID and you needed to take that to live? What yeah, if somebody... I don't, I don't all know it takes is for, there's, there's, not, there's nothing that like that right now. There's nothing you, fighting this we don't know. your immune system. We don't know. But that's <laughs> what I'm saying. But if they give you something to help your immune system, but it's technically considered an antibiotic steroid or whatever, like... It could go left. And let's say all it takes is one person to die from this, like a major athlete. Like, God forbid, I'm not going to say any names, but if a famous athlete from this dies. It wouldn't even take in a the middle famous of the sport, athlete. It would just take a, a mid-tier athlete. You know? Well, I, I think, I think the right your mid-tier point, athlete, but a star? If, if, if a star, no, maybe not dying, but if a, if a star's career is ended. You know, yeah. a star contracts COVID and all of a sudden now he's in respiratory distress. It was like, they remember, uh, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember a Sterling Sharp, great wide receiver for the Packers, had a neck injury where he's, yeah. you know, you see him walking around, he's normal, he's doing his TV show, but he just was never able to play again. His career was cut short. If anybody, yeah. a major guy's career is cut short due to this thing, because again, as both you guys have said, we, you know, people think they know, but they really don't know, you know. There are a lot of guys out there in, in our profession, sports media, who are professing to be, you know, scientists with this stuff. And, you know, listen, I have I have family in medicine in Ohio, in Texas, on the East Coast, on the West Coast. And they're all telling, you know, I, they're all telling me, you know what, we think we know, but we don't really know. You know, I'll never forget 
my apartment building, we were in a dispute with the landlord, and one of our neighbors is a lawyer, you know, and he was taking us through the whole thing. And he called me one night. He goes, dude, he's like, I'm a friggin' attorney. I work for the attorney general. He's like, I, I, my job is to maintain appeals. He's like, I'm looking at this contract. He's like, I've done a lot of contracts in my life. I can't make heads or tails out of it because there's just so many addendums and contingencies. And that's the feedback I'm getting from the doctors. It's like my, my brother-in-law is a physician. And he said, I can treat a sick person, but, but all the ramifications of what's going to happen to this virus, which we've never really seen, you know, like he's treating stuff that he studied for 11 years in med school. And we're basically going now on about five, six months of information. So that to yeah, me is, yeah. is, 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 the, is the danger point because maybe this thing is homeless, like they say, but we're not going to know probably for another six months the real ramifications of it. And yeah. to your point, you know, everything that they told us, okay, it would die down the heat, hasn't stopped. Oh, um, you know, it doesn't hurt healthy people. Well, there's a cool 7% of people with no pre-existing condition that are dying that we don't know why. Um, okay, it doesn't hurt young people. Well, right now, currently the highest growing demographic is 25 to 54 which we thought was going to be good so again everything we know is what we know until we know different so there's no need for athletes to be the guinea pigs to be the test cases which in a lot of ways that's what this would be it would be a test case of you know how much is it worth it to live with covid you know how much is it to put yourself in a situation where you know you're going to get it, but it's for work? So, I mean, is it your duty? Is it not? Well, especially if you have the money, you know. It, it goes to me like yeah, a few yeah. years ago. Especially if you have the money. You know, Debrickishoff Ferguson retired after 10 years. He's a 32-year-old yeah. all-pro defense or offensive tackle who retired. And people were wondering, it's like, wait a minute, why is this guy who's still good – and who's still young retiring. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, he played 10 years in the NFL. He's probably got $70 million in the bank. Why, why would you go back? Because he's a guy who's got other interests. He's got interests outside of football. Like, I, I'm thinking, why would you go back? You know? And left tackles usually do. Yeah. <laughs> same thing with, same thing with uh, Chris Samuels. Chris Samuels retired because yep. he had spinal stenosis. It's like, at one point, do you just keep putting your life at risk? And the funny thing that you guys are talking about, remember when Magic – came back to play and everybody was Carl Malone didn't want to touch him. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, oh, so what's different between AIDS and this now? Because and back then they didn't have all the answers for AIDS. And now and my dad still that, has to forgive Carl Malone for that. He <laughs> might have if they would have won in He might have, but no one should really forgive, <laughs> no one should really get forgive Carl Malone for the person that he is. But that's a whole another podcast. <laughs> Carl Malone was nasty. Carl Malone. Bell. Go, Carl go ask, Malone. Yeah. Go ask Demetrius <laughs> Bell, his son. Yeah. Sure. But like yeah, it's uh, you look at that, and I'm just like, if you, I I go back because it's a I think it's in some cases it's a top down. If the top leads don't have this figured out. It's not happening. But then you go from the bottom up, the grassroots up. How are you going to put children at risk to play these sports to, you know, because there's no point. If you look at it, no one's on campus at these colleges except these athletes and all these athletes are getting yeah. sick. So if you, as someone once said, um, how can there be a class capacity for an online class? It's an online class. So if you can figure things out with people doing distance education, 
and not have people on campus, that's the smartest thing to do. But if you're going to try to have all these young kids out here playing youth sports, what's the point? You're going to put children at risk? Because these children don't all come from affluent homes. So I, I and, if, if the, and if the NFL, if it's not safe for adults and it's safe for children. So that's my thing. And they're going to have to college, especially college sports, they're going to have to restructure this whole situation. The NCAA is going to get abolished because, I mean, they already signed in Florida that players can make money off the likeness. Once California did it, it was pretty much just yeah. like that. That legislation didn't go nowhere just because COVID hit. People are yeah. still doing this state by state in Texas and like Louisiana, where they notoriously fight stuff. Colorado, like that. Oregon, yeah. Washington—they're all yeah. doing. They're all have some sort of legislation. Ch- Chicago, New York—all this stuff is going to hit for. So it's like okay, once it's now legal in every state for people to make money off their own name, well, what's going to stop uh, all these college athletes from getting endorsements from medical companies or whatever else? I mean, you know, it's just I've while always there's found no it, sports. I mean, I've always found it silly. Because everybody's making money except the people playing. I mean, like, you know, and I know people, uh, they, they, they cling to this idea of amateurism, but they forget that, you know, in 1975, okay, you know, John Wooden was making $35,000 a year. There was a one game a week on TV, and they played all the games on the weekends. If you want to go back to that, then fine. Tell me about amateurism. But when billions of dollars are being made, it's hard to tell the people who are actually playing the games, yeah, no, we're protecting you, you know. Real quick, because we we gotta go. I want two. I want two final topics. Let's dovetail real quickly. This tick tick uh, nicely into the Reggie Bush situation and uh, coming out of college and amateurism. Now I'm a US UCLA guy, and this is what I will tell you about Reggie Bush. The worst part about the Reggie Bush situation is, if as a UCLA fan, we could take no joy in it because even the most yeah. ardent Bruin fan knew that it was completely ridiculous that this kid was suspended for, for, for getting a little bit of money, you know, as good as he was. But I'll let you guys take. So now Reggie Bush, his name is allowed to be spoken on campus at USC. He'll be allowed back at games, and hopefully they give him back his Heisman Trophy. Yeah, I'll just hope- say this. I think it's a long time coming only because in my book, I consider him a bust on the pro level. Kenny and a lot of people don't agree with me, but that's how I see it. So – Give Reggie, you know, his due for that five, four, four-year run of greatness that he had, you know, with USC and and really creating that culture that was there that we've seen so many athletes come out of. Uh, yeah, Pete, you're definitely wrong. He wasn't a bust because I mean, without Reggie Bush, the Saints don't win the Super Bowl. Um, not only that, he had a pro. Yeah. Had- okay, without Pierre Thomas too, but he wasn't a number two uh, pick. And. Uh, they, they had Deuce McAllister, and they also had other guys. But anyway, that's a whole other story. With USC, I look at it the same way. The bottom line is... Shout they, out to OJ Mayo, too. Yeah, shout out to OJ Mayo. Reggie <laughs> is the reason... Reggie is the reason why they literally had documentaries in 30 for 30s about that season with him, Vince Young, Matt Liner. Reggie was the best player on that team. Like, Reggie was the best player in college football. Reggie put up legendary numbers, was getting compared to Gale Sayers and everybody else for a reason. He had over half a thousand yards in a game for a reason. And they're not going to – they reinstated him after 10 years, but you know what they're not going to do? Give him all those ad dollars and money that they did, money that they used. What uh, all those USC players on Twitter said, 
USC Reggie Bush was used to recruit um you you know the top athletes in the South Bay, Dory Jackson, all those Sarah kids. You know who you know what Lane Kiffin's recruiting pitch was? Do you think he didn't mention Reggie Bush? Reggie Bush was mentioned everywhere you could possibly go. That's why D'Anthony Thomas went to Oregon, because he knew he couldn't live up to Reggie Bush's shadow, and he didn't want to. So, I mean, like, you, there's certain people's names you can't say when you're talking about USC and college football, and Reggie Bush is one of those people. He should have never been suspended. It was trash. Pete Carroll got away with no accountability, and I still blame him for not putting Reggie Bush on the field on that fourth and two and not giving Marshawn Lynch the ball. But that's a whole other story. Quick thoughts on The Last Dance. Either you guys watch it, have any thoughts on Last Dance, the Jordan documentary on ESPN? My whole thing with that <laughs> is what took you so damn long? I just don't get it. What, like, did you have a fire alarm, like, in case of a pandemic? Let's release <laughs> all this unforeseen Jordan footage. Like, I get it. You know, he was a private figure. We didn't see a lot behind the scenes. No, but, but I think he held it up, Pete. I think the, it was he held shot, it and I think that Jordan wasn't cool with it until I I don't know what happened, who got paid or whatnot. That footage was in for a long time, and it, it took Jordan to get with the right director that he wanted to put it together with. That was my understanding. Yeah, so, I mean, either way, though, I, I, I think it's cool, like, in terms of I haven't actually watched it. Only because okay. I'm waiting to actually have enough time to watch it straight through. Um, so I will watch it just as a basketball fan. But but for me, all I saw from it was just a bunch of you know old heads coming on and saying this is why Jordan is the greatest, which they were already doing. So it didn't really change anything in my eyes, um, other than you know the the same old heads were just just got a little bit louder. I would say I saw some of it, and honestly, I think Michael Jordan's a snitch. Um, and the other part, <laughs> I think Kobe dying had a lot to do with it. Mm. Uh, if Kobe's still alive, I think we still don't see this documentary. But I think because Kobe's dead, and LeBron, like they, everybody came together, the basketball world came together behind that. Jordan had to let some of his ego go, which we know that's a vice grip and a side of a black hole. Like, and all I did was just see, he pretty much just demeaned Scottie Pippen and just said, okay, everybody else, it made it seem like Jordan was so great and everybody else was so minute around him. And I'm like, I think those Lakers teams would have beat the shit out of those Bulls teams. Honestly, prime no, I think, uh, Kobe and Shaq. No, you're lost. You're lost. You're lost, Kenny. Sorry. Watch both teams. <laughs> Dennis <laughs> Rodman can't guard Shaq. No, no, no. Dennis Rodman can guard anybody. Well, go watch the Pistons. I'm gonna go. go I'm gonna go, go watch the Pistons. That's not fair. That's right, not fair. Because he, he, he will not hear that. <laughs> Carl, Carl I mean, he'll tell you Showtime. He'll tell you Showtime would have beat those. Show, show, I, showtime time probably gives them a better. The what I miss, what I think the opportunity we missed was because remember '91 was was my, was Magic's last year. If Magic does not have to leave, that becomes a Laker Bull. Laker Bulls could be the Laker Celtics. What we have here, but I want to ask you two quick questions before we sign off, and I want to thank both uh, Kenny Barry, Pete Camarillo for joining us, the editors slash publishers of the uh, Tangents and T- Touchdowns and Tangents podcast. If you have not listened to it, where where you been? Where you guys been? <laughs> um, best fast food option at CSUN. Woo! Okay. Uh, Sierra you- Hall, the the little um, Asian place in there. That was okay. always my go-to. The they orange stick with rice. They did? 
it's different now. So yeah, I still have my frequent stamp card. Those I got like nachos? I need like two more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as someone who, for, just so we avoid any conflicts of interest, I worked at Geronimo's in the dorms. Okay. Uh, all that free food. Um, gonna say bamboo tears. Shout out to okay. my former chef Benny. Uh, but also the pub. The pub is legendary. The, the pub is the goat. Good, very good. It's the, stand, price, price it's wise, the standard. Price point. All right, yeah. last question. Beers, beers per hour. Beers per hour, and I got the employee discount, so I was getting like two beers for like pretty much two and a half. Best Thursday night spot. Is it so, Kenny? We got to come because I when you talk about free food, I had a buddy in at UCLA who always knew when the free. He would say, "Hey, the Caribbean club is having a wings tonight. We got to hit the Caribbean club. Oh, the Turkish club is having that. So like, so we got to we, we could do a whole podcast on that, Kenny. So <laughs> I'm gonna sign you up for that. The last question before I let you go, Lamine Genet, the greatest player pro- possibly in CSUN history, NBA. Give me thumbs up or thumbs down on his NBA chances. Just to let you know, he signed with CAA, who has signed like the top six guys supposedly in this draft. He's with the same agent. I don't know if that means anything. You guys have both seen his game. What do you think? NBA, yay or nay? I'm going to say yay just because I'm sure there's some scouts who, you know, were like, oh, what's this court Sierra Canyon's been playing on? Oh, there's a school right here in the San Fernando Valley. Oh, they actually have a decent player. So I'm going to go yay. I got to go yay, man. Like, it's all the things that have happened at CSUN, Reggie Diaz, Brandon Martin, their new head coach. Something, somebody got to CSUN, the men's basketball program. They should have started to grow from me, and we could have just all got LaMelo there. We, we really could have. <laughs> they, they got the kid out of Losinger. Yeah. I'm, I'm just worried now. because sit on my salary for LaMelo. <laughs> can, I, can I ask you a question, though? Sure. <laughs> what do you think the CSUN women's basketball program does now that Jason Flowers stepped down and he's gone? Um, I, I'm a huge Lindsey Foster advocate. I was shocked she didn't get a chance to be a head coach. Um, and I, 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 I'm looking forward to seeing the – she's only interim, so we'll, she'll get a year to prove herself. But I think what Jason's strength was is, man, he knew how to pick assistants. Like his assistants, his, the way his staff worked was so good. Um, even, you know, going back to Shannon Fluker, you guys may have said – remember when you saw Shannon no. Fluker her freshman year, before the coaching staff wrapped her up, she, she was struggling. I mean, she struggled – and then by the end of the year, she was the you know conference player of the year as a freshman in terms of her numbers. Um, but yeah, I you know Jason is a friend. I mean, I want to you know uh, I consider him a friend. And I was I was fairly shocked by the fact that he stepped down. He does have some family obligations. I don't know. I haven't talked to him about it. I sent him a message uh, just to thank him for everything he's done for me. Can I go uh, to I your alma mater like another uh, recent he's, great yeah, coach left season. He's He's, coach Avery, he coach started, Avery? yeah, the track coach. Yeah, he started coach. at well, well, me and me and yeah, me and uh, <laughs> Avery. Yeah, Avery's now at UCLA, but no, me yeah. and Jason have have a bond because he was a UCI and a UCLA guy, so we both went to both schools. That's so, what I'm uh, saying. 
But uh, <laughs> no, I really I'm looking forward to Coach Foster, and I think she'll do a really great job. So we'll see. But obviously, you know, Jason took him to three NCAA tournaments. He won two Coach of the Year awards. I mean, he really turned that program around. You can read my and story the, about him from five years ago about his walk-on experience. If you go to they, the sundial.edu. All right. <laughs> yeah. I'm going I'm to link that. Ash, I'm going to link that when I tweet it. <laughs> and you can also look at my basketball documentary that I did on Ashley, Ashley Way, Cinnamon oh, Lister, and everybody else. Yeah, Ashley's the go. Ashley's the go. I mean, man, what a he competitor! Goes. You know, talk about if mama mentality. She had the mama mentality. Um, I, I hope we could do this again, guys. Yeah, Kenny Barry, awesome. P. Camarillo, you guys are the best. Touchdowns Thank and you. tangents needs to get a bigger platform. If there's anything I can do to help, you let me know. Peace You're out. Thank you, guys. Appreciate Thank you. Guys.